Okay, for announcements, just a reminder that Saturday morning we're having our uh, monthly uh, men's prayer breakfast at 7.30, so uh, just encourage all the men to come out. We have a great time of, of uh, eating real food and also uh, eating some spiritual food as we talk about uh, what we've been reading in our uh, scripture reading, what we've been studying, things like that. And that goes real well. Just a reminder for those who are dads, bring your sons. And then um, the next announcement is no class next Thursday night because it is Thanksgiving and people will be traveling with family and all of those things. So we don't have uh, class on that Thursday night. Then there will be... Um, no class again on Tuesday, December the 4th. The pre-trib study group meets in Dallas on December 3rd through the 5th, and so we usually do not have class on that particular Tuesday night. And then following that, on December the 9th, on that Sunday, we'll have our annual church uh, Christmas luncheon. And so be uh, preparing for those, uh, those events. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give all of you an opportunity to be spiritually prepared, spiritually recover if necessary through confession of sin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to enjoy our relationship with you as we learn what you have revealed to us and what you are teaching us. Father, we know that you have created all things and that you oversee all things in creation and in the historic timeline. And as we meditate upon that and unpack those concepts, it, it helps us to understand that everything that we see in life, even the disappointments and the difficulties, the uh, testing that comes, all is under your control and we can relax. And we know that you are working out your purposes and that all things work together for good to those who love God, who though, to those who are called according to your purpose. And Father, as we study tonight and we think about our spiritual life and the basic orientation of our, of our thinking and, and truly humbling ourselves uh, under your power or an orientation to your authority, we pray that you would help us to see in our, our own lives how 
we are arrogant and self-absorbed that you may reveal and expose to us areas where we need to let God the Holy Spirit do his work. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, and we are looking at a topic that everyone is excited to study, and that is humility. When we get into this topic, it's always a challenge because this is the polar opposite of the orientation of our sin nature. Our, or, our sin nature is oriented to, completely towards self and self-exaltation, which is, the, which is pride, which is arrogance. And yet the spiritual value which God prizes and which is fundamental to many, um, many of our spiritual assets is humility. It's related to uh, grace orientation, to teachability, to spiritual growth, to being able to love one another, to forgive one another, all of these are grounded on humility. So uh, grace orientations grounded on humility, doctrinal orientation in terms of learning and applying the word to our innermost thoughts and attitudes, uh, all of this is related to uh, humility. So we need to understand what it means, and I always like to look at an English dictionary on these terms because this is how the Greek has been translated into English. And I remember I had one professor, uh, in fact, if uh, God's gracious, he will be speaking at, uh, at the Chafer Conference this year, Dr. Alan Ross. He's a great wordsmith and uh, had him for a course on Hebrew word studies, and he did something that I've never heard anybody else do, but I think it was just, it, it's outstanding, and that is that after you finished going through all of your Hebrew word studies and usage and everything like that, and you you get five or six English words uh, that the Greek or Hebrew word can translate into, is to look each of those words up in several dictionaries. And he would accept nothing less than either um, the Oxford English Dictionary or Webster's. At that time, it was Webster's Third International uh, dictionary, so you had to use the best English dictionaries to see if the word that was used in in English really reflected the meaning of the original Greek or Hebrew, and a lot of people never go that way and then the next step that you can take is because what you find in most uh, a lot of Hebrew or Greek dictionaries, maybe four or five different words, and those those exact words are the words that are that are uh, usually the way that word is translated, which is a problem in and of itself. For example, if you have a New American Standard, your New American Standard Old Testament translation from the Hebrew is based about 98% of the time. It changed a little bit with the NASB 95, but it was based about 98% of the time on whatever the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon said the meaning of the word was. Now, the problem with that is that BDB, as we would refer to it by the initials of the editors, BDB was done in 1917. Now, that was over 100 years ago now. 
But even when I was in seminary, that was a good 60 years. And in that 60 years, a tremendous amount of lexical studies, lexicography had developed because you found a number of languages and resources and libraries archaeologically that were used to enhance and develop and strengthen our understanding of, of word meaning. So that BDB by probably by 1960 was outdated. And now we have newer uh, lexicons. We have uh, some extensive uh, new Hebrew tools, things like that. But it's always important to just understand what a word means in, in the English. So the word humility, as it's divide, defined in the concise Oxford English Dictionary, is to have or show a low estimate of one's own importance. Now that's not bad. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12 that we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We shouldn't have a bloated view of who we are. We should think uh, not in a, you know, modern, modern man wants to come along and psychologize everything with terms like self-image. Someday I'll do a study on the whole concept of self-image. It comes out of pure pagan uh, relativistic thought and Freudian psychology, and never should those terms be used by Christians in any way, shape, or form because they have real dangerous baggage associated with it. Uh, but we should not think highly of ourselves beyond who we are. We should understand who we are in light of what the Bible says. A second meaning is of low rank, and that uh, relates to a to its economic use. We may talk about somebody who is of humble origins, and we're not just talking about a um, uh, that they might not have had a whole lot when they were growing up, or they, they weren't, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of high expectations, but it relates to their socioeconomic situation. And so often you have a, these words that are used for humble and are also translated low and have a certain economic significance in some context. So uh, it has that idea of being uh, 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 in a lower socioeconomic rank. And then the third meaning listed in the uh, COED is of modest pretensions or dimensions. As a verb, it means to uh, lower in di- dignity or importance. So that that's pretty close, and so we need to understand what uh, the Scripture says. So we're going to look at this key passage, and we've studied the first four verses. I ha- still had that in here. Maybe I think I got the right slideshow. We get to verse 5. Verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So we're going to look at these three verses. They all are tied together by the concept of humility and how this should be central 
to our mental attitude, our thinking about ourselves and our thinking about, uh, uh, about the world. And the main thing that we get out of this is something I've, I've stated in the past lessons, is this emphasis in the Scripture that servant leadership is based on humility. That is not how we look at leadership in many, many ways. That's why in the Scriptures it talks about Gentile leadership as being characterized as some form of tyranny, lording your position, your authority over others. So humility is based on having a proper understanding of authority. Maybe you have heard it said that in order to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. And that is a true statement. What that is emphasizing is that to be a good follower, you have to understand authority and you have to be oriented to authority and be able to submit to authority. A good leader is still under some other authority. He's not at the top of, of the pyramid yet. And so to be a good leader, you have to also be a good follower. You have to understand authority. You have to understand uh, what it means to submit. And in Scripture, that is based on obedience to those who are placed over you. It is not the idea of someone just walking on you, abusing you, just rolling over, steamrolling over you. And that is often what I will hear back from people, especially if you talk about submitting to so-and-so. You say, well, you just want me to be a doormat and be uh, overrun all the time. And no, that is... Uh, that is an inappropriate and illogical uh, statement of using the extreme opposite, uh, and and it violates the um, ba basic logic by creating a a false contrast. When um, when we submit, it's a recognition that the other person may not be right, but they are the person who's in charge. And so we have to submit to them, understanding that, because once you see authority breaking down and you see a generation, as we've seen starting with my generation, the baby boomers, and then it exacerbated in the subsequent generations of the generation Xers and Yers and now the millennials, is that you, you go into uh, just pure anarchy, and that's what we're seeing politically with the rise of the Antifa group and other groups is that they want it done their way without going through the proper and appropriate channels. We're a nation of laws. That means that uh, some of our laws, because we're human, may not be righteous. They may not be fair. They may not be equitable. But there are there's a framework within the Constitution for changing laws. And it is not to be handled through chaos and through anarchy. It is to be in rioting and all of these other things that uh, are coming out today. It's to be handled through the appropriate channels of, the, uh, of Congress and of the various legislatures and other organizations. Now, at the time of Peter's writing, he's talking to these leaders because they are about to face a serious time of persecution and opposition and hostility. And we can say that the same kind of thing is very much true for today in this generation. We never would have thought we would see some of the things going on in our culture that we see today. 
and we have people who are in all kinds of situations. There's a young lady that made the news this week. She is, uh, I believe, Chinese. She is a, on the Student Senate Council at uh, University of California at Berkeley, and she abstained from a vote. She did not vote against something. She voted in. Uh, 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 she just abstained from from voting. But it had something to do with the recognition of transgenders and uh, positive approval of the of the LGBTQ, XYZ whatever community at Berkeley. But she said, I can't vote in favor of this because I'm a Christian and I recognize that I have to represent the Christian community as well and I have to take my stand for biblical truth. And there was a three-hour demonstration on the Berkeley campus where they were shouting all kinds of vile insults and profanity and called her all kinds of horrible names because she would not uh, go uh, approve of their position. And, you know, we never would have seen anything like that 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, but that's what is happening today. And that's just the beginning. I think this is going to get uh, a, a lot worse, and it's happening in a lot of different environments because those who are opposed to us have become quite quite militant in their uh, in their moral relativism. It, it, we got to go back to the time of the judges in the Old Testament, where twice in the book of Judges the writer says that it was a time when there was no king in Israel, that is, no authority, but that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was a breakdown of all of the divine institutions, and so society was fragmented, and for a period of about 350 to 400 years, they were just overrun and dominated by foreign po- powers in a, a regular cycle, all of which was an outworking of the uh, divine discipline, the five cycles of discipline that we have described in Leviticus chapter 26. It was everything but the uh, fifth fifth cycle of discipline. So leaders need to be prepared for this, and therefore leaders need to learn humility, and God teaches that. So as we look at this section, I just thought we'd break it down just to catch the thought flow. We have three commands that are mentioned here, and whenever there is a command in Scripture to do something, the flip side of that is that it involves the first divine institution of individual responsibility. So every command involves a responsibility on our part. If we are commanded to pray without ceasing, then we are responsible to pray without ceasing. If we are to give thanks for all things, then we are responsible for giving thanks for all things. If we are to walk by the Spirit, then we are responsible for walking by the Spirit. So every command entails certain responsibilities on our part. And what we have here are three commands that are stated. And all three commands uh, relate to the topic, which is submission and humility. So 1 Peter 5, 5 reads, Likewise, you younger people submit yourselves, and there we have an aorist 
passive imperative. That's the passive isn't as significant here because that's the nature of the verb. But the aorist imperative is stating it's a priority. And that's important to understand that uh, aorist doesn't, it really doesn't involve time when it comes to the imperative mood. You can either have an aorist imperative or a present imperative, sometimes a perfect. But it's, it's an, a pre, an aorist imperative just emphasizes something as a priority. And, and there can even be passages where you have a, a verb stated as an aorist imperative and then in the same context as a present imperative. Present imperative emphasizes that this is something to be, that is to be characteristic. It's a standard operating procedure for your life. And so if, you, if it's put in a present imperative, it means make this the normal way in which you do things. If it's in an aorist imperative, it's, well, you're probably not making it the normal thing in your life, and so you need to be uh, given a direct order to make this a priority in your life and start focusing on this. And so that's the idea with an aorist imperative. It's that it's the idea of make this a priority in your life. And so you have that stated as an imperative, and then it, it's like Paul just sort of stops back and he backs up and he says, and he's saying, not only you younger people, but all of you need to be submissive to one another. Because if we can't submit to one another and get along with one another and not uh, get uh, arrogant with one another, then we can never have uh, genuine humility. So all of you be submissive to one another, and that is a, a participle. It's an, um, it's an imperatival participle because it's surrounded by imperatives, and so it picks up that sense to it. All of you be submissive to one another. And so this is one of those things that we're to do for one another. We're to pray for one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to... Uh, help one another, we're to teach one another, we're to admonish one another, we're to forgive one another, we're to love one another. All of those fit together. Those are the one another ministries in the church. So it's talking about believer to believer within the body of Christ because we're all members of the same body. And we all know that there are some people that are believers, that are members of the family, that we just have a hard time getting along with and that we don't really want to uh, act in humility in relation to them. And so this is related to a fruit of the Spirit and God the Holy Spirit working uh, working in our lives. So he, uh, Peter says, submit yourselves. Then he says, all of you be submissive to one another. So even though there are different rankings, some in authority over others, the general mentality is not asserting your privilege, your position, or your power, but it is working together uh, in love, working together in uh, mutual submission. And the second main command is then given in the next uh, clause, and be clothed with humility. And this goes back to also being an aorist imperative. So the two primary commands are to submit and be clothed with humility. Submit to one another. Uh, submit yourselves. So that's the main idea. And then there's a quote that is a, 
uh, sort of a, a statement to support the importance of this statement because the opposite of, of humility and submission uh, is, is arrogance. And so there's a quote from Proverbs 3.34 uh, that says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So this sets up our contrasting categories of proud versus humility. So if you're uh, humble, you will be submissive. If you're arrogant and prideful, then you will not be submissive. You will resist those who are in authority. And then that leads to a concluding challenge indicated by the first word in verse 6, therefore, therefore humble yourselves. Now this is the command here, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And then you have the last phrase, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And the word casting is indicated by the ing ending is a preposition, I mean, is a participle, and it's a participle of means. The command is to humble yourself. Well, how do you do that? You do that by casting or throwing all of your care upon God, for he cares for you. It's submission to divine authority. You have a problem in some sphere of authority. You have a problem with a teacher. You have a problem with a parent. You have a problem with your boss. You have a problem with a superior officer in the military. You have a problem with the government. What's the solution? Is to subordinate yourself to God by casting all your care upon him and let him take care of the situation. So these are the, th- the three primary commands uh, that we have here in verses 5, and then the quotation for support. The reason for doing this is given in, pro- in the quote from Go- uh, Proverbs uh, 3.34, with the concluding chal- challenge that we are to humble ourselves by casting all our care upon him. So let's look at verse 5. It says, likewise, you younger people. So this is an age-related term. It's the word naos that that addresses the younger people in the congregation in contrast to the elders. The presbyteroi are elders, and that's not a term for uh, necessarily for age, but it is a term, as I pointed out, for, for maturity. But here, because it is usually associated not only with with spiritual maturity, but also uh, physical uh, maturity, then uh, Peter addresses the young ones who have a tendency to not want to follow the leadership. They may have a better idea. And so he says, you younger people, and he's addressing, he just says the ne'ah, so this would include uh, men, women, uh, whomever, uh, that they are to submit to your elders. And in context, context, the word elders refers to the leadership in the congregation. And so coming under a time of uh, pressure, time of adversity, there might be a lot of people in a congregation who may want to be more 
uh, active and rebellious towards the government or towards some authority if there was persecution. I didn't have a lot of positive things to say about the film that came out last spring on the Apostle Paul. But I thought one of the themes that was uh, developed within the film was that Paul is in prison. He's in the maritime dungeon there in Rome. And there's uh, Luke is also present. I, I'm not sure that that was historically accurate, but that made for a nice story. And there were those younger individuals who did not want to submit to Rome, and they wanted to engage in some sort of opposition and rebellion. And one of them went out on his own and did some things, and it brought down the power of Rome against them, and the consequence was was harsh on the Christian body. And I thought that that little theme that they developed was so true, because in, in an environment where you've got government opposition to Christianity, and if you want to go try to take care of it on your own, then and the leaders of the church say, shut up and sit down, and you don't shut up and sit down, then you're part of the problem and not part of the solution. Because the, the leaders of the church are in the position of authority, and they understand when it's necessary uh, to take certain courses of action. And so this fits that particular scenario that that Peter was writing to. All of these different um, Jewish background believers, they were dealing with leadership within their own community that would be against them because they had become Christians as well as hostility from the uh, Greco-Roman culture surrounding them. So that is addressed to the younger people. And then we have the command, which is hupotasso. Uh, as, as I pointed out earlier, it's an aorist imperative, and it is, it is a verb that indicates the importance of submission to authority. That means doing what the person in legitimate position of authority says to do. Now, for many of us, we understand that there is uh, there's the position and then there's the person who is in the position. And so we are to respect the position. You may not like the President of the United States, but we are going to honor and respect him because he is the president of the United States. The same thing applies to somebody who is a teacher. You may not like your teacher. You may think your teacher is completely wrong, and they may be, but you are to show them respect. You are to treat them with deference. You are not to oppose them to their face in in class. I remember I had a professor, his name was Dr. Jones, he was a political science professor at Stephen F. Austin, and he made it a point to pick on those that he knew were in uh, ROTC. And back in those days, if you were in ROTC in college, then one or two days a week, then you would wear your uniform all day on campus. And so it w- if you had him on one of those days and you'd be showing up in class in uniform and he'd be pretty sure uh, who they were and he had a tendency to pick on them. This was the era of the Vietnam War. It was the era when there were a lot, a lot of student unrest and he was extremely liberal and he was against the Vietnam War and against the military and a lot of other things. And so he would pick on those 
uh, who were uh, who were you know pro military, and there were several times when his behavior was reported back to the commandant of the. Uh, ROTC department, and he would contact the head, because that was also under the, uh, somewhat under the liberal arts department, and so he would call him and lodge a formal complaint, and that's the way it needed to be handled, and not by uh, retaliate, verbal retaliation or name-calling in class. That would just exacerbate the issue and, and make make it personal. So we're to respect the office. The same thing applies in a marriage where you have a wife who is married to a husband and unless there is a life-threatening situation where there is physical injury or something of that nature or there are certain behaviors that are prohibited from Scripture that are legitimate grounds for divorce, then a wife is in the sometimes difficult position of submitting to that authority. Uh, We see a good pattern here in Peter where we saw that a slave, even if he's working for a harsh master, is still told to submit to the master and not to react or rebel against the master. This is such an important concept today to, to for parents to teach their children. And we've seen two or three generations, beginning with the baby boom generation that was brought up on on uh, Dr. Spock and a lot of the um, liberal views of child rearing that dominated that generation and is just passed on. And so you have had a number of things happen. On the one hand, you do have a number of cases where there are parents who do not understand how to corporally discipline their their children how to physically discipline their children and so they become abusive they do it out of anger they do it out of uh, hostility because the child has uh, rebelled against them or uh, uh, disobeyed them in some overt way but a parent who is loving of their child knows that that child needs to learn respect for authority and that begins at the very beginning. You don't wait. I've seen parents do this. Well, I'm going to wait until they are mature enough to understand what is going on. Now, you're, you're going to be a failure as a parent. From the very beginning, when the child does something that is wrong, you know, you got a padded diaper there. You're not hurting any kid. You just pop them one on the butt and they're going to understand that that is a negative reinforcement. You're not even hurting them, probably. It's just that they know that they've been, uh, that the source of love and comfort has not been real loving and comforting at that moment, and so they'll react. But it builds a pattern so that by the time they begin to uh, be able to uh, talk about anything or learn anything verbally, uh, those patterns of discipline and reproof have been established. You don't, if you wait until they're, they're two or three years old when you can explain things, you've just waited too long. You set the authority. You're the parent. You're the one in charge. You're the one who set, tells them when they can and when they can't do something and when something is right or something is wrong. Uh, we have some states in the union that have passed laws that make it wrong to paddle children. Uh, we had a statement that came out from 
uh, pediatrician group this last week I saw that uh, rec- does not recommend any kind of corporal punishment for children. And all of this is just a way of destroying authority orientation and development of, of humility. If we look back on the last 65 years and you look at and you just take a pattern and look at what's happened in each of these generations, has the application of this laid-back, non-corporal punishment uh, view of family discipline improved the self-absorption and uh, authority orientation of each generation? Not at all. You see a each generation has become more self-absorbed. They, they don't know how to handle it when somebody tells them no. They have a, more pity parties and uh, throw more tantrums. And so th- what happens is it destroys the, the moral strength and fiber of a generation. And so this has now been going on for three generations, and we have a generation now that it's not true for every single one of them, but it is true for a large part uh, to a large percentage of them that it becomes a characteristic of that particular generation. The Scripture gives specifics. And the Word of God trumps every empirical study of the psychiatrists and pediatricians and everybody else in the nation because God, God's the one who created human beings. God has a more thorough understanding of your sin nature and an infant sin nature than any doctor or any psychiatrist or any counselor. And he understands more completely because he created us what works and what doesn't work. You know, there's a time for grace. There's a time for gentleness. There's also a time for discipline. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares his rod, and what that's talking about is a disciplinary uh, action, uh, hates his son. That's an extremely strong statement. If you as a parent are not willing to spank them from diaperhood, then in God's opinion, you have hated your child because you're not willing to prepare them for the ugly realities that they will face in adulthood where submission to authority and self-discipline and humility are, are going to be necessary to survive. In contrast, the writer of Hebrews says, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. You don't wait three or four hours, especially if they're young. By then they've forgotten about it. You promptly discipline them. You have to be very conscientious of what you're doing as a parent as you go through the day because these Teachable moments don't occur at convenient times as far as I've observed both uh, personally as a child growing up and being corrected and as an adult watching this and having to observe this. I've been a teacher, I've been a camp counselor and camp director and a lot of other things where you had to uh, instilled discipline into young kids that didn't have any discipline and had to spend a lot of time learning these things. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. What is meant by foolishness here is rebelliousness. It is the idea that they can flaunt authority without 
consequences. And so Scripture goes on to say the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, this it doesn't mean you're beating the heck out of your kid. This means that you have a strong, stable, thoughtful, responsible uh, view of corporate corporal discipline. And so you are going to take it in hand. When the child is old enough to understand, you can explain what they've done and what the punishment is. But when they're little, when they're an infant, they just need a quick reminder that there are negative consequences, and that doesn't mean doing harsh things to them. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen, the rod and rebuke give wisdom. But this only happens when there's humility, but humility has to be learned. It has to be enforced uh, for some people. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Now, that's an important principle there because we live in a world today where too often parents are too busy with work and with uh, personal things that they enjoy doing to take the time to really be with the child and to personally discipline the child. And they don't understand the parameters of it because they don't have any doctrine in their soul. They don't understand the biblical principles. They have to understand humility. They have to understand the difference between uh, mercy and justice, and they need to understand how to uh, faithfully, evenly administer uh, discipline. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold correction from a child. See, we have a whole generation that if they hear an opposing viewpoint, if they hear a correction to their views, they just go through a meltdown. They have to have a safe space. This last week at Ohio State, um, uh, Ben Shapiro was speaking there, who's a known conservative, and the university had to create a safe space for a number of students who thought that they were just they, they just couldn't handle the fact that there would be a conservative on campus who would be saying things that they didn't agree with, and so they had to create this safe space. See, this is what happens when you withhold a correction uh, from a child. They don't know how to handle disagreement or uh, or any kind of rebuke. So the first time they go to work for somebody and they get called in and they're told that that whatever they were working on was wrong and they need to do it all over again, they're just going to have a meltdown. The verse goes on to say, for if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. The rear end is a very soft spot to land the rod of correction. It was designed that way, and so that will enable the child to learn the lessons. Some of us learned it quite difficult. I always remember a time when my mother, who was in a wheelchair, I I used to always refer to her as she was about this tall and had wheels. And if I got out of line... Uh, she would find a way to appropriately spank me. She wasn't going to let being in a wheelchair stop her from doing what was necessary. So we have to learn authority orientation. This is key. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. That means when you disagree with them, when they might even be wrong, when they suggest a course of action that you strongly disagree with, then you submit yourselves to them because that they are the ones that are in authority. 
and also be submissive to one another. That is mutual grace orientation and love for one another. And then there's the quote from the passage, um, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But the command to be submissive to one another is also stated by Paul over in Ephesians 5.21. He states almost the same thing. And Ephesians 5.21 is only uh, three verses after 5.18. 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine in, in excess, but be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse, it talks uses participles through these all these verses to express the results of God the Holy Spirit filling us. They are we are to give thanks and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing hymns is not something added to worship. It is central to worship. It's foundational to worship. It's not something that's just added on to Sunday morning as some sort of uh, unnecessary frill. It is uh, at the very core. And so is submitting to one another. This is one of the results of being filled by means of the Spirit. So when you have a congregation like the the congregation at, at Corinth, at Corinth, there's a lot of rebellion. They were choosing up sides, and they were being divided according to who, the, which teacher they wanted to listen to, and they were making uh, one teacher better than the other. They were not submitting to one another in the fear of God. They, if you're not submitted, if you can't submit to one another, and if you have trouble submitting to legitimate authorities in your life, whether it's a teacher or an officer or an employer or a parent, then you have trouble submitting to the authority of God. Because many times God tells us to do things when we just don't want to do it. That's not what my sin nature wants to do, and we want to rebel. And so all of us have to learn to submit to the authority of God. Peter has emphasized this many times in 1 Peter, and he's used this same verb, hupotasso, all the way through. In 1 Peter 2.13, he said, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. That, and he's writing this to those in the Roman Empire, probably during the latter part of Nero's reign, when Nero was beginning to go psychotic, and some of the laws that were coming down from Nero were hostile to Christians, and he is saying that you have to respect the office and the authority even if the person in it is doing wrong things. We have to, in our country, the ultimate authority is the law. At least it should be. Uh, We're losing a sense of that, that we are what sets us apart uniquely in history is that we are a nation of laws. In Romans 13.1, Paul echoes that same thought, and he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There's not an asterisk there, even in corrupt manuscripts listing exceptions. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Again, he's writing to those who are under under 
the rule of Nero. Now, Paul wrote earlier than Peter during the better part of Nero's reign, but the principle is that even when the person in authority is wrong, unless they are telling you or forcing you to do something that violates Scripture, we need to submit to that authority. It may be foolish to do some things. It may be unwise. It may be uh, economically dangerous, but that doesn't mean it violates the direct mandates of God. In 1 Peter 2.18, Peter said, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. But what he means by fear is really respect, to uh, respect and honor the position that the master is in. He says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. In other words, the behavior, the failures of the person in authority do not exempt us from obeying them. They are still in that position, and they still have that role of authority. In 1 Peter 3.1, he says, Wives likewise, and that likewise takes us back to the command related to governing authorities, Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, if they are spiritually rebellious, if they're unbelievers, that doesn't affect the need to be submissive, that they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. It doesn't say that they will be won by the conduct of their wives, that they might be. It's potential. Ephesians 5.24 says, Therefore, just as this church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. So, Wives, what this is saying is that you as a believer, in your relationship to the authority of your husband, are mirroring your uh, submission to the authority of Christ, and you are giving a visual representation of how Christians should submit to Christ. That's a tough comparison to live up to. But that's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5.24. In Romans 12.10, he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And the word there is philostorgos. Uh, storgos comes from the word we use for a stork, and a stork's love for uh, uh, her, her uh, young 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 birds that she, she ha- has given birth to the, get to the eggs. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. So uh, just as a stork is very close to and very protective of her young, so we are to be protective with that kind of, uh, of affection that, is, uh, uh, that seems to be indicated there by the stork in honor giving preference to one another, not to one another whom you like, not to one another whom you agree with, not to one another who you think everybody should, uh, should follow, but to one another, even those who you disagree with, even those who may seem foolish. We are not to arrogantly put ourselves out there as a judge for another person. And, of course, the ultimate example 
of this kind of humility comes from the Lord Jesus Christ as demonstrated in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. That whole section from uh, Philippians 2, 6 down through verse 12 focuses on Christ as the example of humility. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Now, who did he humble himself to? He humbled himself to the point of death. He submitted himself to the authority of Pontius Pilate. He submitted himself to the authority of the unrighteous Jewish leaders, to the Herodians and to the Sadducees and to the Pharisees and to the Sanhedrin and uh, to all of the Roman soldiers. He willingly uh, uh, submitted himself and humbled himself under the unrighteous command and the unrighteous legal decision to execute him. That was not a righteous law. They were violating the very law of both Jews and Romans in the way they executed him. And yet he submitted himself, he humbled himself, and so what often happens with us is that in arrogance we say, well, I'm not going to submit to that person. I'm not going to do what that person wants me to do. And and we elevate ourselves. And the reality is, is that if Jesus had asserted his right behavior to not submit to unjust authority, we would not have salvation. Now, that's a lot to think about. Because one thing we don't like in our sin nature is to be forced to obey somebody who's not doing it right and somebody who is unfair and unjust. And so after commanding them to submit the young, to submit to their elders, a second he said that they should be submissive to one another. And third, he says, be clothed with humility. Four. Now this is an interesting phrase here. The verb is uh, one that is only used here in the New Testament. It's enkambuomai, and it means to put something on like an article of clothing, but it also has the idea of tying something on. And what it relates to is that in, in the ancient world, if you were a servant and you were uh, working for your master, then you wore an article of clothing, an apron, that indicated that you were a slave and that you were enslaved to this master, and that that apron would be fastened to the to either the your belt or to a vest that you wore, and it was significant for distinguishing slaves for freemen. And so when Paul uses this particular verb, that is what he is alluding to, is putting on the apparel of a slave, submitting yourself to authority. And it, as such, this imagery comes across as put on humility and so show your submission to one another. And so it's a picture of one who is totally submitted to someone in authority. So we're to be clothed with humility. And here we get to a couple of words that we'll go back and forth on. 
Uh, the first word for humility is this word here, tapani frasune, which refers to the basic characteristic of humility. Now, if you study humility in Greek thought, humility was really a bad thing. Uh, humility was, you, you did not uh, not want to be humble because if you were going to be somebody, you had to assert yourself. You had to be out there uh, making sure everybody knew all of your accomplishments and pushing yourself forward all of the time. That is just the opposite of what Tapani Frasune rec- uh, 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 indicated. Taipinos is the noun to be humble. So we have both of these words here, to be clothed with humility, that is submission to authority, because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Now when we get to these two words, it should bring to mind something that we studied on Sunday morning in our study in Matthew. And so this takes us to Matthew chapter 18. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Just to remind you a little bit of the context, as Jesus was coming towards the end of his of his ministry, there were a couple of times when you had a situation where uh, the disciples were arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, and Matthew chapter eighteen is is one of those particular uh, chapters. And we read in verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4, Therefore whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is the same word that we find here that we're looking at, um, uh, typenao, which is the verb form of this this term. Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. As I pointed out when we, I, when we studied this, that this is one of those passages that gets poorly understood because we don't understand the cultural context very well. If we go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus and they said, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And earlier, remember, the mother of James and John come to Jesus and said, uh, uh, are, are you going to let my, my sons sit on your right hand and left when you come into the kingdom? They were always vying for who's going to be the best, who's going to be the greatest, who's going to get the positions of honor in the kingdom. And so Jesus gives them an object lesson here, and he says, uh, he calls a little child to him and sets this child down in front of them. And he says in verse 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, that's a very bad translation because that indicates conversion from being an unbeliever to being a believer. And they're already believers. The actual Greek word is simply the word strepho, which means to turn. In other words, you've got to turn away from your self-absorbed arrogance and become humble. And that's the significance of this little child, because in their culture, 
Uh, a little child had no rights. A ch- little child had no privileges. A little child was a nobody socially and economically. Uh, a little child was uh, best neither seen nor heard. And so they want to be seen and heard. They want to be somebody. And Jesus says you have to be a nobody like this little child. And if you don't understand how to think properly about yourself rather than elevating yourself, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he enter the kingdom of heaven, as we studied, isn't a phrase for getting into heaven when you die. Entering the kingdom of heaven has to do with with your entry as someone who would rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. It has a lot more to do with uh, entering the kingdom and enjoying the kingdom blessings and privileges than just getting saved. Uh, Getting saved is, is a different concept. So what Jesus is saying here is if you want to have a position in the kingdom, then you need to learn to be humble. You need to learn to submit to authority. And so this is the same idea. This is where Peter first began to learn the importance of humility in leadership. And then as he does this, he is going to uh, support it. It's a quote from Proverbs 3.34, which starts off, God resists the proud. So here we have our opposing concepts, pride or arrogance versus humility. So we'll come back and pick this up next time to get into the Old Testament imagery here and what's going on in Proverbs 3.34 and understanding a little bit more about the dangers of self-exaltation in the sin nature. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that we're all arrogant. That's the orientation of our basic sin nature. And we're arrogant in all kinds of sneaky ways and all kinds of ways that we like to cover up and uh, create our own little pseudo-humility. And we just pray that as we are honest with ourselves before the mirror of your word, that you will expose to us the areas where we are arrogant, where we're self-absorbed, and where we're self-assertive instead of trusting in you and relaxing in your under your mighty hand, meaning your power and your authority. And Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to learn what it means to submit to you, that you might be exalted. In Christ's name, amen.